you're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, if you'll take your Bibles and uh, open them up to the book of John, chapter 3. I want to tell you a little story first. One night a pastor went for dinner at a couple's house from his church. Had a great night just eating a wonderful meal, and when it was over, the pastor dismissed himself, went home, and the couple are at the kitchen sink, they're doing dishes, and, and she's looking over the dishes, kind of funny, and the husband says, what's up? She says, I think, one, I think the pastor stole one of our spoons. He goes, what? That's not, that's crazy. No, seriously, I think he stole one of our spoons. So they went looking into the dining room, and any place it could have fallen on the floor between the dining room and the kitchen, and Sure enough, they were missing a spoon. I bet he stole our spoon, she said. Well, they kind of thought, well, whatever. We, I guess we'll just go get another spoon somewhere. And They went on. But, you know, it, it, it bugged her a lot. And, so it, it, and it kept bugging her for a whole year. And finally, after a year, she said, let's have the pastor over again. And he says, are you sure? And he said, she said, yeah. So they had the pastor over for another meal. And they're in the meal. And she doesn't know exactly how to bring it up. But she finally says, you know, pastor... Last time we had you over, we think you took one of our spoons. Our, one of our spoons is missing. And he goes, oh, <laughs>, laughs a little bit. No, I actually put it in your Bible. <laughs> Some of you are going, what? In other words, she hadn't actually been in her Bible for a whole year. And she didn't realize that it was there. You know, today's message is in a way, a little bit about what happens here Sunday after Sunday. We get into God's Word, we consume it with with zeal, and then we don't think about it until next Sunday. We started a series called Greater Than a couple weeks ago, and each week we've been revisiting the claim by John the Baptist that Jesus must be greater and I must become less. Can we say that together? Jesus must become greater and I must become less. The first Sunday of the series, we were reminded that Jesus is greater than our capacity in everything, right? I mean, so much so that you and I don't need to wake up to be a somebody. We already know the greatest somebody in the entire cosmos. We don't have to try to wake up and and try to overcome nothing because he is our overcomer. We don't have to try to be right or better. He is our righteousness, So you don't have to try to prove anything or compete with anyone because Jesus is your confidence, right? He is your identity. He is who who you live for. And then last week, we looked at how Jesus is greater than our labels. That's because you're a child of the living God now, created in the image of God, and that makes you Jesus' brother, right? And that's where we find our true identity, Even when others or even the devil tries to label you, then you and I need to remind ourselves who it is that Jesus sees us as and who we belong to. See, Jesus thinks we are the apple of God's eye, and he treats us as such. So don't just tuck away the truths of what we learn each week in your Bible and then come back next week and be revisited by it a bit or maybe, God forbid, a whole year goes by before something happens with it. Make them change how you wake up in the morning. 
Because Jesus needs to be greater than the voices in your life. And that is the only way that is ever going to happen. Today, I want to help you see that Jesus is also greater than your impossibles. Do you have an impossible in your life right now? Of course you do. Everyone has an impossible once in a while. Maybe you have an impossible marriage. Maybe you have an impossible financial situation. Maybe you have impossible children. Maybe you have an impossible job. Maybe you have an impossible health, medical diagnosis. Maybe you've been in a situation and you've tried to work it out. You've tried every possible way, but you're at that point now where every solution seems impossible. Worse yet, you've asked God to intervene. You've begged God for help. And now the situation is beyond what maybe maybe is even impossible for him. Because if he could have helped you, right? He would have by now. What's your impossible? If you have some sermon notes, why don't you write that down somewhere or just at least get it lodged somewhere in your brain for this service. When we last visited John the Baptist, he was baptizing in the region of Bethshan, which is near Anon, uh, near Salim. And Jesus was baptizing around there too. Well, not Jesus, actually, his, his disciples were, but it, it just says Jesus was baptizing. But a lot has transpired since then, and from there, John moves his preaching ministry to the Jordan River, where he he actually baptizes Jesus. But just before that, in one of his messages, he calls out the immorality of King Herod. So turn with me to Luke chapter 3 for a moment, before we keep your finger in John 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, it says, John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. So John is in prison for insulting a political dignitary, right? For, for, the, for insulting the Roman official over Galilee. And he's facing now the impossible. Herod actually feared John, as the scripture tells us in another place. He actually liked his teaching. But John didn't know that. But this kind of went a little over the top. All John knew was that Herod's reputation meant that political prisoners like John don't actually ever get let out of jail. In fact, John was in prison for nearly two years since he baptized Jesus when we get to our our main text for today. Jesus, though, was very busy doing the works that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And after one such work where Jesus raises the dead son of the widow of Nain, we read this. So turn to Luke 7. Jump ahead a couple of chapters. Verse 16 to 17. It says, They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, the story part that we want to really get to today is found in verse 18, but we don't want to miss verse 17, because verse 17 is the context of, uh, and the news that G- about Jesus that was spreading throughout the whole countryside. It was spreading so far, so wide, that John's disciples tell him about it while they visit him in prison. Verse 18, John 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him, that is John, about all these things. 
Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Remember, John has been in prison for nearly two years at this point. He's facing an impossible situation. Herod ain't letting him out. John knows what's going on in the mind of someone who faces the impossible, and we're going to learn that today. The first thing is this. Number one, what do we do when we're up against the impossible? Number one, understand that impossibles are a test of your faith. Impossibles are a test of your faith. Verse 20, Luke 7, verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's a funny question coming from the guy who, was, uh, point, who actually pointed out Jesus at the Jordan and, uh, about two years ago and confidently said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew who he was then. So when John's disciples bring him the news that was spreading all around, that people were saying that Jesus is a great prophet that has appeared among us and that that God has come to help his people, I don't know, could John have been questioning Jesus' reputation? Maybe at this point, after two years, John is losing his faith. He's in an impossible situation after all. Maybe he's... Maybe he's wanting to know what's taking Jesus so long to do what he came to do. I kind of think John was thinking that Jesus was going to help him by rescuing him from jail when he becomes king. Remember, deeply embedded in the Jewish psyche is the hope that one day Messiah would come and restore the kingdom to Israel which would bring about then the overthrow of the enemy at that time, which at this time, in Jesus' time, was the Roman Empire, right? But two years have passed for John, and he's no closer to a release from prison than when he went in. Impossibles feel like jails, don't they? Does your impossible feel like a jail yet? Jails with no keys except for the key that God has to break you out. But where's God? Where's his key? What's taking him so long? Will he ever come through for you? So, John is maybe just needing some hope at this point. And maybe you're needing some hope too. Or somebody that you know is needing some hope because they're facing an impossible right now. Because impossibles feel like prisons they really are then a test of our faith. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if, if you're in that place because it's your fault. Let's face it, sometimes we are. Or whether or not it's just bad circumstances and bad luck. John was in there for doing the right thing. He could have kept his mouth shut and not taunted Herod and by pointing out his immorality And really, maybe that's what he should have done because actually he was put on this planet to point to Jesus, wasn't he? He was there to point to the Messiah, not to point out Herod's sin. But 
He was on a roll then when he was out of prison, and he was bolder then when he was on the outside. That's the other thing about prisons of impossibility. They strip you of your boldness. Are you facing an impossible these days? How are you doing with that? Are you in a prison-feeling phase of the impossible? Have you lost your boldness? Or maybe have you lost your faith? Over my years of pastoring, I've talked with a number of people who've been there. And a number of them have confessed that they've had trouble believing in God as a result of their prison of impossible. That doesn't shock me anymore. At first, I thought I had to have this profound spiritual insight of God's will to to give them in order to help them trust God again. But I've realized that that's not my place. Holy Spirit does a much better job teaching than I do. Impossibles are meant to be a test of our faith, that much I know. And in my own life and from reading the classics of the Christian faith, works that are much older than the books that we get at parables typically, books like by A.B. Simpson, A.W. Tozer, Andrew Murray, Brother Andrew, they all affirm that testing is good. The testing of one's faith is good. I mean, the Bible claims that, sure, but here they are. About 2,000 years, 1,500, now 2,000 years later, They all attest to the same thing, that testing is always good for our faith. Not always pleasant, certainly not always painless, but always good just the same. John Bunyan, who wrote the classic novel, The Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you ever read that, Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah, a few of you have? It was published in 1678, so I'd forgive you if you haven't read it. It is an old book, but it is considered, it's not just a Christian allegory about the travels of a man named Christian who travels from his home in the city of destruction to the celestial city atop Mount Zion. This is a Christian classic, and it's genius. The story is about the many pitfalls and and impossible situations that Christian faces And how he is tested and tried over and over and over again. But how his faith is purified and prevails. If you haven't read it, I recommend you do it. I think we have it in our church library. And certainly you should be able to get it at uh, Kennedy's Parable Books. I would get the modern version reading of it. It's a little harder to read the older version of it. But there's also a kid's illustrated version. Would be wonderful to get for you and your kids. And there's a movie about it. There's a movie about everything. The testimony, though, of Christians over the ages is that impossibles, whether brought on by our own mistakes or stupidity or brought on by the circumstances of life, impossibles are always a growth phase for our, church, or for our, for our faith. Always. So before we find ourselves in the next impossible, it probably would be good for us to equip our hearts and our minds with that in our heart and our mind, that impossibles are a test of our faith. And that's a good thing. And that way, when you're in the, in, the, in the impossible, it won't derail you quite so quickly. Well, after John's disciples asked Jesus that question, are you the one who is to come, and, or should we expect someone else? 
The text goes on to say this, Luke 7, 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached, is proclaimed to the poor. Most of that message is exactly what the disciples had already reported to John about what he, they had been hearing throughout the countryside. He knew what Jesus was doing. But he's in this prison of the impossible because impossible, impossibilities test our faith. And he needed that testing. But this is the second thing. Number two, past experiences with God should encourage you to press on in the impossibles of life. Past experiences with God should encourage you to press on in the impossibles of life. Verse 22, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Really, all that Jesus is doing is telling these guys, tell your rabbi what he's already seen and heard. And then he lists the works of the kingdom of God that he's been doing. John was part of all that before he entered the prison of impossible. There was a time not that long ago when John was doing, he was right in the thick of it with Jesus, doing all those good works. He was part of the Father's plan. He was, he was seeing the supernatural take place. In fact, it was John himself who testified in the Gospel of John, not his book. But John the Apostle records, John chapter 1, verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. Now, that's John the Baptist. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And then he gets to baptize God's chosen one, Jesus in the Jordan River. And John was there when, when they all heard the Father's voice come from heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And that's why John, Jesus told John's disciples, Listen guys, go back and report to John what you have already seen and heard. Tell him to remember what he's experienced so far. He knows who I am. Listen, you may be in an impossible situation right now. But you know who Jesus is. You know who Jesus is because of your past experience with him. Don't give up on that. Don't forget that. This is why it's important to make sure that we tell people when we experience the works of God in our life. 
This last Friday when I was preparing my sermon, I heard some people come into the church and I popped my head out of my office and there's Joe and Diana coming into the church to prepare for the ladies' event and, and Joe stopped me and he, he told me what God had, had, how God had answered his wife's prayer from that morning. And it was incredible. And now, that, though it wasn't a drastic, situ- impossible situation, but it was God showing Joe and his wife that God cares about the details of Joe's life. And that's what God does. And Joe made it a point to share that with me, and we should do that. This morning in the lobby, uh, Bill and Elaine were telling, uh, telling me about some Cambodian neighbors that came over and, and the things that they had gone through for Jesus and, and how they survived such horrible things for Christ. We should be telling people over and over and over again the wonderful works of God in our life. Friend, when you're not in the impossible, when your faith isn't being tested, Make sure you're telling others often and rehearsing often with friends and family, your kids and your grandkids. Grandparents, please pass on the stories of faith to your kids. Tell them how God worked through impossible situations. Be vulnerable with them. Share with them God's works. Say, hey, remember when we took these steps and how God came through? Do you remember these answers to prayer? Remember when God. It's good that you go back and you report what you have already seen and heard from God so that the reality of God in those experiences sustain you during the impossibles of life, right? Now, if you don't feel like you have had any of those kinds of experiences with God yet, let me just encourage you to pursue God for those things. Pray more, pray lots. If you haven't had those experiences, read the Psalms within the Bible. They are great reminders of Israel's experience with Yahweh, with God. And how through times of of testing and troubles, they lost faith. How through times of prosperity, they lost faith and fell away from him. But how God, when they rehearsed his blessings, when they rehearsed all that God had done for them in the past, and they repented and they reaffirmed their faith, God delivered them. Listen to Psalm 71. I love this psalm. Psalm 71. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long. Though I know not how to relate them all, I will proclaim, I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me And to this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Impossibles are times of testing of our faith. Past experiences with God encourage us to press on in the impossibles. And so we should share those with others. Number three, when impossibles assail you, don't stumble, stand firm to the end. And there's a little caveat there in brackets, even if they don't end. Let me repeat that. 
When impossibles assail you, don't stumble. Stand firm to the end, even if they don't end. That is the impossibles. Ah, Pastor, why did you have to add that last part? At the end. Even if impossibles are good and test my faith, I can understand that, but I still want them to end. I don't want them to last forever. Why do you have to add that last part, even if they don't end? Well, because Jesus said they wouldn't end sometimes. And because that was John's experience. Luke chapter 7, let's go back there. Luke chapter 7, verse 22. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You know, if you should go, be able to go through this life without any impossible moments, and, and, and life is nothing but good and gracious to you, you have lived a very lucky life. You're very fortunate. But if your Christian life and experience is fraught with impossibilities and countless tests of your faith, the Bible tells us that Jesus has a special blessing for you if you are willing to persevere in his name. Verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Okay, I want to remind you, maybe inform you, that if you, if you don't know your Bible, John died in prison. He didn't get out. He didn't escape that impossible situation. Let's turn to Mark's gospel for a moment. Mark chapter 6, verses 17 to 29. So it's a lengthier piece, but this is, this is John's end, okay? And it's quite lengthy, I think, for a reason. And it's kind of gruesome. For Herod himself had given orders... To have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared God feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. There's a lot of people there. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That's quite a bit. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately, 
he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Hmm. John's impossible went from bad to worse. He finally left the prison, but in two pieces. Doesn't seem fair for someone who loved and served the Lord so wholeheartedly, hey? I read of a pastor recently who was training indigenous missionaries in India who on one trip, he found himself washing the feet of a martyr's widow whose husband he had prayed for and commissioned to plant churches on a previous trip. On that same trip, he also washed the feet of pastors and church planters who had been persecuted for preaching the gospel, one of them nearly beaten to death. That man had won so many Hindus to the Lord that he was savagely attacked and lay in a coma for five days. In the hospital where he lay unconscious, a doctor had been bribed to kill him. But his family found out about it and rescued him, taking him home from the hospital until he recovered from the coma. But he gradually recovered. After he recovered, the preacher went back to the same area he was beaten and he began preaching again, winning to the Lord and baptizing the first man who had beaten him and assaulted him along with many others. He was then attacked once more and had to go into temporary hiding to heal again but he was resolute in his desire to return and preach the gospel. Folks, we have never been promised that the impossibles of life will ever, ever be promised to end. We are never promised that the impossibles of life will never befall us. I know in Canada and the U.S., we think that faith in Jesus equals blessing and protection from the impossibles of life. I I think that's why, and some of you are going to not like me for saying this, but I think that's why we in the West like the pre-trib rapture view of the end times, because we think that faith in Jesus entitles us to protection from tribulation. It doesn't. And not since the last hundred years did anyone in the church ever believe that it did or believe that that end times view was even a possibility. But in those last hundred years, think of Canada and the U.S., how materialistic and entitled even the Christian church has become, and it has weakened the resolve of Christians to suffer for Jesus, while our brothers and sisters everywhere in the world are suffering for Jesus. We have people in this church whose families have suffered for Jesus across on another continent. John 16, verses 1 and 2. It's just the opposite. All of this I have told you, Jesus said, that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Really? Yeah. Verse 33. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome what? The world. Unfortunately, when Christians like us live for generations in peace and safety, and as a result, our faith doesn't get tested regularly by the impossibles of life, we get complacent. And when complacency sets in, and when real real impossibles do happen, and we are tested, some of us will stumble. Some of us will even fall away. 
on account of Jesus. More like on account of the Jesus we thought Jesus was but wasn't. And that image, see, we all have an image of who Jesus is and what he's like. Some of that is shaped by the Bible, but some of it isn't. Some of it's shaped by what we want Jesus to be like. And that image is shaped by two things, like I said. By what Jesus, by what we want Jesus to be like and by the experiences that we like to have with Jesus or those that we don't have with Jesus. See, the Jesus we want, and maybe even, maybe even the Jesus that some of you were promised when you first believed, may not be the Jesus of the Bible. It may not be who Jesus really is. It's the Bible that we should ultimately have to shape our understanding of who Jesus is and our experience of him. What did John expect? Well, from Israel's past experience, John knew that most of the prophets of the Old Testament were killed for their message by their own people, most of them. He knew that that was not only a possibility, it was a probability that he would die for his ministry. And probably even an inevitability. John believed that Jesus, though, was greater than the impossible before him. He just needed a little affirmation from Jesus. And Jesus said in verse 22, John, or Luke 7, verse 22, John, what you have seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You will be blessed if you do not stumble on account of me. And John died with that blessing. And look at Jesus' response when he heard about John's beheading. Matthew chapter 14, we have to go to Matthew. Chapter 14, verse 12. John's disciples came and took John's body away and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. What did Jesus do? Well, he was hoping to get away to a solitary place to just mourn, to spend some time away privately. But as soon as he lands on the opposite shore, there's a crowd of people there. And so he didn't really, other than the time in the boat, he didn't really have time to mourn John. What did he do? He spent a little time alone, and then he continued doing the works that John saw and heard Jesus doing when they started out together. Jesus kept doing the works of the kingdom of God, and that was pressing and paramount for him, and it was for John. Both John and Jesus were all about fulfilling the work the Father sent them to do. So like John, when impossibles assail you, don't stumble. Stand firm to the end, even if the impossible doesn't end. Even if the tribulation comes, stand firm. Even if you're thrown into prison, for your faith, figurative or literal. Stand firm. Don't stumble. 
even if you face beatings and a martyr's death on account of Jesus, stand firm and do not stumble. Friend, every Christian should be ready to be a martyr for Jesus. When we read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit, before the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That word witnesses, which we all claim to be, we read witnesses, but did you know the Greek word is martyrus, which is martyr? The expectation was is if you witness for Jesus, you will face persecution, tribulation, and probably martyrdom. It was just an expectation in the early church. A martyr means one who will proclaim with his dying breath the message of the kingdom of God. And you know what? If you remember at the beginning, we sang that song, his breath is in us. It's his breath we breathe. It's his breath. Spend it on him. You and I are here not for the blessing of a comfortable life, You and I are here to proclaim Jesus as God's Savior for the world. Let's not get complacent as the church. Let's pray for those overseas who are facing persecution all the time and let us be bold while we are in this season of comfort and safety so that we can share the love of Jesus with others. Let us not faint from that calling. Let me remind you of this from Romans chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. Let me put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish convert, the last of the apostles, the last chosen apostle. Through Christ, we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we celebrate in hope the glory of God. In other words, the return of Christ. And not only this, But we also celebrate in our tribulations now, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen? So treat your impossibilities, your impossibles, like a test of your faith. Embrace it as that, and work through it. Past experiences with God should encourage you to press on in the impossibles. And like John, when impossibles assail you, don't stumble. Stand firm to the end, even if the impossibles don't end for you. John believed that Jesus was greater than the impossibles before him because he believed that Jesus was greater than him. He had to be first. And I hope that you will consider Jesus greater than yourself, and then therefore greater than your impossibilities too. Let's pray. Oh God, I wonder how many times, Lord, I wake up in the morning and I read your word because I want the blessing of knowing you more. I want the blessing of answered prayer. I want the blessings that you have for me in this world, but Lord, comparatively, how many times do I go to your word for transformation only? Lord, as we are in this word today, help us to remember
that impossibles are just that. Impossibles. Except for you. You are our possibility. You are our everything. And though you have not promised to fix every impossible situation in our life, help us not to listen to teachers who tell us those kinds of things, but instead help us, Lord, to remember. Help us, Lord, to remember the blessing that Jesus does give, that if we don't stumble in this world as on account of him, we will be blessed. It's about persevering faith to the very, very end. And help us to prove faithful, Lord. In Jesus' name.